Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you are looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. Just a quick reminder about, um, about Colossians, that the first two chapters are Paul dealing with doctrine and principles. And the last two chapters are, are him talking about how to apply those things. We cannot be people who just come and hear the word of God and go, oh, I didn't know that, and then go home and live unchanged. We can't hear the, the, we can't hear the gospel, can't hear the words of Paul, we can't read scripture, and then not apply it. The goal is not just to find out more about what all this is. That learning has to lead to some type of difference in action. All right? So the first two chapters, I put it in your, in your notes here, the first two chapters of Colossians, Paul lines out the principles of faith. He addresses the key doctrines about the church. It's not an organization, it's us. Uh, knowing God's will, who Christ is, the ripple effects of the Christian life, and so on. And in the last two chapters, Paul instructs us how to apply these principles to life. So we're going to go through um, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. I'm going to break these down into three sections for us so we can draw our attention to some things that Paul is saying specifically. So number one in your notes, believers think about things of heaven. Believers think about the things of heaven. <clears throat> Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life and, you, and your real life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is your life, <clears throat> excuse me, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. Here again, we find Paul making this connection uh, next on your notes between death and life. So when we put our faith in Jesus, he moved us from death to life. Remember, he didn't die to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Now, it's very important to understand what he's talking about here is when he's talking about the realities of heaven. He uses this word very specifically because the gospel is not a philosophy, a human-created way of living. It is an idea that some people follow, and it just works for them. You find what works for you. I'll follow what works for me, and all of that. It's not just one of the many ways to live out there. It is the centralized truth of everything. So when he says, make sure that you're focusing on the reality of heaven, he's talking about this is real. We talked about hell a few weeks ago, or last week, I can't remember, but earlier in this series, hell is not the bad times on earth. It's not a figure of speech to say you had a sorrowful moment. Heaven is not the moment when Husbands, you walk in the door and you see your wife sitting on the couch and you're like, I'm in heaven because I see an angel. Although that's a, probably a line you can use a little bit later. Um, uh, my wife's just going to be like, terrible joke, terrible joke. Um, not, that's not what I'm talking about. It's not just like a, like a blissful time, you know, that you had, oh, this today was my version of heaven here on earth. No, it is a, both of these are real places that, He's talking to us about the reality of heaven. So what does it mean to think about the things of heaven? Does it mean that we're walking around thinking about little fat, little Cupid 
angel babies floating on clouds with tiny wings playing the harp and giggling as they float by each other? <laughs> We're in heaven. Hi. No. Does it mean that we think about that old school picture of the giant pearly gate with the gold road that winds up into a big castle that looks like some at Disney World? Is that what we're supposed to be thinking about all the time? No. And as I was trying to figure out the right way to explain um, what all of this means, I just came down to Adam Clark's biblical commentary, and I just copied and pasted it because he did a great job talking about what thinking about the things of heaven really means. And it's the next two lines here in your notes. Love heavenly things. Study them. The next line is study them. Let your hearts be entirely engrossed by them. Now that you're converted to God, act in reference to the heavenly things as you did formerly in reference to those things of earth and vice versa. This is a very good general rule. Be as much in earnest for heavenly and eternal, the next line's eternal, eternal things as you formerly were for those that are earthly and perishing. So he does, he does a really good job of painting a picture here before. So before you give your life to Christ, before you're saved, you are operating in a selfish, fleshly, evil, do what I want all the time type of mode. You are, that's what we call um, acting in depth. I'm pursuing relationships I shouldn't be pursuing. I'm pursuing levels of intimacy that I shouldn't be pursuing. I'm pursuing um, money. I'm after the job. I'm after the fame. I'm after the fortune. I'm after the visibility. And you may not um, apply that. That may not apply to everything you pursued. But in that general area, all of us were running in that general direction before Christ. After him, after we get saved, our appetites change. So he's drawing this picture about, if you can just think about, man, I, I'm thinking about um, all of the effort and energy that I pushed into doing what I wanted. And the just barely a little bit of time shoved on the way back burner, I thought about the things of God and spiritual, spiritual things in eternity. And he's saying, now that you've been, now that you come to Christ, think about the things of heaven. Take all that in, uh, attention and energy that you were running after these selfish things and flip it and give all of that energy to pursuing the godly scriptural commands that Jesus and God has given us. And that little bit of interest that we used to have in God, make that type of interest, that little bit of interest on all of the temporary things that we have to deal with every day. He's saying flip. Flip the attention, the amount of passion, the amount of energy that you give, the, the time and the focus, the thinking about these temporary things. Flip that. Give the majority of it to the things of God, the things of heaven, and the reality of heaven that is to come. And take all of that little bitty time and then let that be how we deal with the temporary stuff. Now you might say, well, how am I supposed to think about all these godly things all the time. I got to provide for my family. I got to raise my kids. I got to go to school. I got to make coffee. I got to go to work, right? I got to do all these different things um, to get myself going. I got to continue on with my career. I got to continue on with my education. I need to continue on doing the things that are in front of me. How am I supposed to think about the things of heaven? Am I supposed to neglect all of that? 
and then just sit around here and be like, it's just me and Jesus today. And kind of just float around my house? No. It's the way you do these things. You can pursue the career that God put in front of you. You can pursue a higher position. You can start a business. You can do whatever it is that God has put in front of you to do. But how do you do it? Do you do it because the focus of everything um, is, is me? I want it. I want to be known. I want to be recognized. I want the money. I want, to, I want to be the one that looks around and everyone says, that guy is successful. Or am I doing it because I'm going into this business because I'm going to employ people and I'm going to make sure I leave my fingerprint on them as a believer in Christ? Our culture is not very good at nuance, if you haven't noticed that. Not very good at, at um, uh, looking deeper at the whole picture of the whole story. Two things can be true at the same time. That's hard for our culture to understand. Two things can be true at the same time. You can be, next line, Christians can be in this world, but we're not of this world. Both of those things can be true at the same time. Christians are in this world, but we are not of this world. I didn't know for a very long time that that phrase was not an actual Bible verse. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I thought it was an actual Bible verse. I heard it so many times. It's based on Scripture, so the statement is correct. And here's the Scripture it's based on, John 15, 18, and 19. If the world hates you, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of this world, because I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. You can be here dealing with the struggles of life, the, the cares of life, but if you're overrun by them and that is the only thing that your focus is, is, um, is zeroed in on, if that's the only thing you constantly carry, then what you're doing is you're focusing here instead of keeping your mind on the things of heaven. It's not that you're supposed to stop doing these things. Are we doing these things and prioritizing them in a way that honors God in our relationship with him? Our attention, our focus, the reason that we do these things has to be with him in mind above everything else. Believers think <clears throat> about the things of heaven. Number two. Believers put immoral actions to death. Believers put immoral actions to death. Colossians 3, 5 through 10. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still part of this world, but now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other, for you've stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become more like him. Paul, I, I worded this this way, specifically, this point, this way, 
specifically. Because some people think that when I get saved, I give my life to Christ and I become made new, that all of a sudden the things I want are going to change. All the things I used to struggle with are going to be put to death. The repercussions of those sins is put to death on the cross. But we might have to struggle with them still. How do I know that? Because he's, who's he talking to here? Next on your notes. Who is Paul telling to kill the earthly sinful things lurking in their hearts? Us. He's saying, you guys kill them. You guys put them to death. He's telling us as followers of Christ, we need to put these things to death. That right there is enough to sit with and go, are the things that have been around in my life for a very long time, are they still here because I'm the one who hasn't removed them? Am I the one who hasn't killed these things? Am I, am I the one who has not taken the initiative to use the, the power that's been given to me to leave these things alone? Are they around because I'm literally choosing for them to stay around? Because he's saying here, you, us, believers in Christ, put these things to death. And he comes after two big ones. Sexual immorality and greed, right? Can we put these things to death on our own? Next on your notes, no. Can we put these things to death on our own? Meaning in our own strength, no. Who helps us conquer these evil desires? First word, holy. Second word, spirit. The Holy Spirit who lives inside of you once you became new and once you became, uh, once you became a follower of Jesus, gave your life to Christ, the Spirit of God is inside of you, and now you have a new power, a new ability to put these things down that you didn't have before. It's impossible to live for God without him because of that. Paul is drawing a comparison here of what we used to do when we were dead in our sin and what, we're doing, what we should be doing after we come to life. Now, when he, he comes at two big things, right? Paul takes on two major issues as he begins listing behaviors believers should avoid. Next on your notes, sexual immorality and greed. Sexual immorality and greed. Now, I'm not going to spend time talking about greed because my, uh, the, the, the position of Roots Community Church and the Bible when it comes to the prosperity gospel and all that kind of stuff is well documented. I'm not going to beat that, ho that dead horse again with you because we know it doesn't make you prosper and it's not the gospel. So he doesn't just talk about that. He also talks about sexual immorality. And in our culture, we need to remember, this is the culture we know and understand. But this is the culture. Remember, he's not talking to us. He's talking to the Colossian church, to the people in the city of Colossae who are dealing with the same things that we're dealing with now. This is a human problem. Although we are watching our culture descend into this immoral behavior and not only descend into it, but run towards it embrace it and show no remorse that they're chasing after these things anymore that might be new for us but that is a human problem that is a human condition 
It might not be something we've we've experienced in the suburbs of Phoenix or whatever in our lifetime when we've been growing up. But he deals with them directly. Now, in our own culture, it can be very hard to think, how am I going to put these things to death when I can't drive down the street and see a billboard or an ad on a video or just incorrectly hit the wrong button on my phone and all of a sudden, I'm faced with, hey, what the heck just happened? All of these images, all this stuff that was presented to us, why in the world or how in the world are we supposed to put that to death when our culture is taking a bath in it, it seems like? We have to make sure that we understand the impact of it. I'm starting to talk to more and more people who are kind of comfortable that I struggle with this. I, um, I, I, this is, there's a thing that, I've, that I'm kind of dealing with, but, you know, kind of just what I deal with. It's this problem, this, this issue that I have in my life, and I kind of just deal with it. And, you know, I've prayed about it and, you know, some things, and I just, you know, just kind of here. There's more and more people that are just accepting the fact this is the culture I live in and this is what we deal with here. So I'm just going to continue to struggle with it. And if I could just make it through life and have this one little vice, then I'm all right. And I'm here to tell you today the, uh, the research says differently on this particular subject. The Barna Institute of Research, George Barna, he does a lot of, um, a lot of research for the for the Christian community at large. He's actually based out of Arizona Christian University down about 20 minutes down the road from us here. These are his findings just about the subject, not of all the sexual immorality, just one portion, pornography. There are there around 42 million pornographic websites totaling around 370 million pages of porn. The last U.S. Census, there was 320-some million people. There are more individual pages online of pornographic material than there are people in the nation. You ever flown into New York? You ever flown into a city and seen, oh my gosh, this thing goes on forever. Look at all those houses. Look at all those lights. Look at all those buildings. Look at all those apartment complexes. Every single person, if you could stand somewhere and see every house and every person in the nation, there's more digital pages online of pornography than all of those people in this country. The porn industry's annual revenue is more than the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball combined there's it's also the revenue is more more than the combined revenue of abc cbs and nbc the three largest major networks that are left 47 percent of families in the united states reported that pornography is a problem in their home pornography pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300 percent if these, next two, if these next two things in your notes don't make you mad, then we need to check you for a poll. The average age a child is first exposed to pornography is 11. 94% of children will see, will see pornography by the age of 14. 56% of American divorces involve one party having a, quote, obsessive interest, unquote, in pornographic websites. 
This particular um, stat that I'm about to read for you is a little bit old, so I think the number's gone down just a little bit. But um, within the last eight years, this was true. According to the Canadian Business, which is a business journal online, the United States exports sends out to the world 89% of the world's pornography and leads, and leads the way for its digital distribution. Not only are we creating this garbage, we're finding ways to easily transport it to everybody else across the globe because we're feeding the base animalistic desire and, hey, give me a few bucks because I did this for you. This phenomenon is not only people chasing to watch it. There is an increase of the people who are trying to create it. It's not just sitting there watching and, and taking in this garbage anymore. It's an increased number of people who are saying, how can I get involved in the industry and create something so that I can make money and I can feel like, oh, people want me. It's a hard thing to sit in a room like this because normally we would talk to about this subject specifically to guys, right? In times past, we would we would sit and talk to men and say this is a major problem because men are very visual creatures and it still is a major problem men husbands uncles single folks men in general we need to lead as believers in christ conquering this area in our own lives and in helping our brothers in christ conquer it as well but the thing that's shocking to me is that the statistics are the female, the women who are participating and watching this now is on a rise, a dramatic rise. Why? Men can run around here and be with a bunch of different women. I'm just going to go be with a bunch of different men. We're the same, right? See how all this plays together? All these ideas play together to create this conundrum that we're in the middle of? I wrestled back and forth of should I even go through something like this in a setting where I know there's going to be families? But uh, Josh McDowell said, if you have a device with a screen and an internet connection and a child under the age of 10 in your house and think that pornography hasn't come across their eyes, you were the problem. His words, not mine. You're putting your head in the sand and acting like it's not a problem. If you're someone who's here or watching this later or listening to it and you have a problem with this and you want some help there are a ton of tools and ministries available to you that i will help connect you to i will help you finance them if you can't finance paying for the courses or whatever to go through i will help you because it's that big of an issue I don't want your marriage to be a risk. I don't want your relationships to be a risk. I don't want uh, um, th these statistics to be you. But more important than the statistics, I want our heart to be pure before God. I used to think, oh, well, God's going to have to deliver some people from that. Paul just said, you kill it. You kill it. Put that sucker down. The Spirit of God not only convicts us of sin, helps us to overcome it, but provides a way of escape. Sometimes the best way of escape is a doorknob. You open the door and walked into the scenario. It worked. There's one on both sides, right? Open it and walk back out. 
I'm kind of in this place that where I was tempted. How did you get there? Oh, I went. I saw all this stuff. They offered it to me. I didn't want to say no. I felt pressure. Was there a way out for you? Yes. If you are a young person in this room and you are ever in that scenario and don't know how to get out of it and you want to get out of it, I guarantee you your parents will love to be the excuse. Let me give you an example. Do you want to do this, participate in this activity, go in this room with me? And you're like, I don't want to do that, but I feel pressure. Uh, fake a phone call. Oh, dang it. It's my mom. Give me a second. Let me go and call her. Hey, mom. Fake the phone call. And then call your mom and tell her to pick you up. Do the same for your dad. If you can't get a hold of them, shoot, call Nina, call me, call Brian, call somebody here. We will be like, and then you know what you can do? You can talk trash us, uh, tr trash about us to your friends. <laughs> Dumb pastor shows up at my party. He didn't know he was coming by here, and he saw me out in the yard. Made me go with him. Can't believe that guy. Lay it all on me. I don't care. If it'll help you, then fine. Find a way to get out. There is a way for you to get out. Sometimes with this the way to get it uh, to to escape this particular thing don't put the phone anywhere near you at night cut it off after a certain time don't get up in the middle of the night and go try to find the laptop and be real quiet however it is that it is consuming it's typically coming through the internet get away from those things put that to death I guarantee you, if you keep your mind on him, there's no space for this stuff to grow. No space for it to grow. Listen to what Paul says when he talks about greed and all these sexually based sins. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. Yeesh. Because of these th things, not only these, but these, these are just two big ones enough that the anger of God is coming. It's on its way. Then he says, oh, yeah, let's not, let's not um, uh, miss any, any parts of the spectrum here. Get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. How do we do those things? He tells us at the end of the passage, put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and come, become more like him. You do not see people, me included, behind this, uh, sitting up here in front of you, teaching from week to week and going, read your Bible, pray, develop a relationship with God, because I'm trying to get to heaven and be like, I told them what to do. And they checked it off and we all get bonus stars. No. What? If you get close to God, you become more like him. Paul just said it. And if you learn about him, you get to know him, you become like him, you put on his nature and you have your life renewed how does how do i become new how do i think new how do i transform the renewing of my mind how do i do that as the, the, the as scripture tells us in romans paul just gave us the clue here get close to god learn about him think about the things of heaven adam clark study him love those things not pull out a pen and a piece of paper and that's how you have to study if that's not how you learn learn as you go Put these things into practice. And if you screw up trying to do the right thing, there's grace for you. No one here is going to make fun of you or beat you or smash your pinky toe with a hammer or something like that because you stepped out of line. What are we going to do? How do, how, how do we avoid this problem again? 
Let's pray. Let's repent. Let's don't go this way again. And let's go in, in, into a direction that is honoring God. You change direction. You put these things to death. You get out of the situation. You have been given the knowledge. You have been given the conviction. You've been given the power. It's time for us to act on that. So when he said be renewed, I started thinking about that. What does that mean? Be renewed. Like an old car that was restored and repainted? Maybe. But as I got into reading these, I'm not going to read all these passages of scripture, but I put them down here in your notes for you to go and read them later so you can find the scriptural basis for how these things are supposed to change in us as the life of the believer. But being renewed means there's a new way of thinking. Romans 12.2. A new way of acting. Galatians 5.22 and 23. A new way of living. 2 Corinthians 5.17. A new way of dealing with problems. Colossians 1-3. Or 1-3. A new way of forgiving other people. Ephesians 4.32. A new way of finding joy. Romans 14.17. Uh, a new way of loving others, John 13, 34. A new way of finding fulfillment, Matthew 5, 6. A new way of prioritizing life or the things in our life, Matthew 6, 33. When you are renewed, you think about things differently than you did before. <clears throat> and so this message, I just told you that this message is not, um, not supposed to be informative. It's supposed to be something that we all put into practice, right? This whole back half of this, uh, of the book of Colossians, these final two chapters are about applying these things. So what I want to do is sometimes you can hear about Paul, you can hear about the Colossian church, you can hear about these things and go, oh, that's interesting, but it doesn't really come to life for you, right? So I want it to come to life for you. And I'm gonna, we're going to tell you three quick stories before we wrap up here today. And I'm going to ask Ryan and Brian to come, here, to come up here with me real quick. <clears throat> and I want um, I'll, Brian will go first and then Brian will go second you can still come if you want but I mean <clears throat> so here's what I asked them to do and you can kind of slide here so the guys online can see your what and we can record it um, I heard you talk about um, a renewed perspective about death mm. and um, because of what you've experienced and stuff and so I just wanted you to tell them about that how that renewed perspective is a reality and plays out in action in your life sure so you know when you're you're a christian and you always hear about people in the world dying who haven't been believers haven't given themselves to god there's always a, a sadness that's there there's a it's almost like a loss i think it's in galatians it tells you that everybody runs the race but there can only be one winner so run the race so you can win so the winning has always been giving your life to God. That's how you win the race. That's the formula. And so you guys know recently my mother passed away. And I think about what Matt just talked about tonight, about thinking about heaven. And that's all her last days were, was thinking about heaven. And it was the most comforting thing. We were sad. We were about to lose our mom. We saw the time ticking away. That final few seconds before she passed, we were there with her. I held her arm and I said, Mom, I hope you can see angels. I hope you can feel Jesus coming. I hope you can see your reward. I hope it's in reaching distance from you. And when she died just a few minutes later, I was very sad to lose my mom. But she ran a race. She won. She won. 
And so when the sadness of the initial loss goes by, it's filled with a, uh, a euphoria. It's filled with a happiness. It's like cheering for someone your whole life and seeing them finally win. It's probably the one race in your entire life where you lose someone and everyone is sad except for the person who wins <laughs> because they get what they've been running their whole life for. Man, do I want that feeling at the end. <laughs> that is a different perspective on death when you're a believer, completely different because you run that race and you win when you're in God. Before salvation, where's the hope? The life is just over. It's just lost potential. It's just death. It just ended. But when you come from death to life and you get close to the Lord and he renews your perspective and you love him and you think about the things that he's talking about and you pursue him and get close to him, he begins to renew things in you. And one of those things that was renewed in front of you, you just watched it, was a perspective on death. It's not this final thing where we're just, it's over and, and there's nothing else. We go out into the void or back into the nothingness. Paul even says, I don't want you to be like those who have no hope. There is hope that is renewed. I'm asking Brian to come. <clears throat> you said something that was key um, that I wanted you to kind of share with them about um, uh, when you were renewed from, when you went from death to life, when you became a believer, there's this newness that happened in your mind in a way you treated people. I just want to tell them about that quick. Um, I think for me, immediately, one of the things that God revealed to me was I was, I wasn't really a good person. Um, and when I came to Christ, I knew that I needed a savior. I knew I was in need of grace. And I knew that I needed an extension of love. And I kind of treated people the way I would treat myself. I was really hard on myself. And so I was hard on other people. And so I was, um, when I got saved immediately, I realized that I can't treat people that way. That everyone has a story going on that I know nothing about. Um, and so immediately I've learned to love people and extend grace um, and repercussions of what of their actions to me now there's an understanding that goes on beneath that it's like well they have something going on and God is working through them and so it's I don't take things personal as much I don't feel the sting um, and I don't react to it because I know that God has God is still writing their story and the same with me God is still writing my story and so that you said huge. something about them, too, is that people who see you today and knew you before, see the difference? Yeah. You know, it's, it's so weird when I walk into, so when I left home, I go back home, and I've seen people that I grew up with, and we have nothing to talk about because they don't even recognize this person that I am now. Um, I have conversations, and it's always like, it's weird because we could be having a conversation, and they stop midway through, and they're like, I can't believe you're... Brian, like you're the guy we all knew, like you were the ringleader and all these things. And I don't even know what to say to you. And so like people I knew my whole life, when I see them, when I go back home, we walk past each other and I realize we have nothing to say because they don't know how God renewed me. And so, yeah, it's crazy. It's not just that that was renewed. That's just one thing. 
one aspect. There's something that happens, and the closer you get to the Lord, the more you become like him, the more you put that old nature to death, the more you put on that new nature, it just renews you and how you deal with all these people in all these situations. I'm going to tell you a story that I've told here probably once before, but it is the perfect story to show how all of these things that I just listed off here about the newness and the renewed attitude and heart and mind in one scenario. I was a uh, <clears throat> very young youth pastor in Florida, very young, like when I say green, like, you know, not suitable for consumption, like a green, very pasty white green banana, right? Like just like I, I was not ready to do anything. <clears throat> and I got a phone call um, from this family that was in the church who wanted me, not the pastor, the hospital visitation guy or the worship leader or something, wanted me, the guy who didn't know anything, to uh, go to a mental institution and talk to a woman who had tried to kill herself. In this particular um, city in Florida, if you tried to commit suicide, they put you in a behavioral health clinic for seven to 10 days, uh, whether you wanted to go or not. They wanted to make sure that they were not gonna risk your life. <clears throat> so her story was, her name was Gail, and I remember it because my mom's middle name is Gail, and Gail um, uh, was married for about 20 years, and uh, they had one child. They decided, you know, really early in their marriage, they wanted to start a family, and they had a child together. <clears throat> and they were only able to have one, and so they were like, that's great. You know, he's our pride and joy. And through a, I won't get into the entire story because it would be here forever, but um, through a very tragic accident, uh, auto accident, um, their, their son was killed at the age of 17. Their only child... They were obviously wrecked, torn apart, devastated, and they leaned on each other to get through this thing. Well, their son really liked uh, restoring vehicles, and I think he had like a 1934 Ford truck that he was restoring and fixing the engine and, you know, making the body all new and like, you know, ironing out the dents or whatever and repainting and everything, and it wasn't quite finished, and as a kind of a homage to him, like an honor, like an honor of his memory. Um, they went and paid to have the truck finished <clears throat> and fully restored. They painted it uh, pearl white so that when it got in the, the sun, it would shine really bright and just glisten. And they called it Casper, like Casper the Friendly Ghost because it was white and shiny. And they stenciled his face. They hired someone to professionally stencil his face on the side of the truck and they went to all these um, all these car shows and all these places to talk to people about um, you know auto accidents and things like that and kind of kind of keep the memory of their son alive <clears throat> a little while after their son passed and they finished the truck and everything um, uh, one of the one of Gail's friends was out doing some business on close towards the beach and she saw Gail's husband off in the distance and he was going to lunch with Gail, and he, she's like, oh, my goodness. I can't believe they're out of here. I thought she was, you know, at work today. I'm going to run over there and just say hi to him real quick. So she got all excited and ran from her, you know, where she was in this one building and ran over to the other place. And she opened the door, and she's looking for Gail and her husband, and she sees her. She sees Gail's husband, and then she sees the woman that he's with and that she thought was Gail, but 
not Gail. And her first thought was, well, I mean, it must be like a business meeting or a business lunch or something. Might be a client he's trying to take out somewhere. And as she kind of sat back and watched for a second, it became very apparent that that's not what this was. The way he was holding her hand and putting his hand on her shoulder and reaching over and kissing her became very clear at that moment that uh, her friend had just caught Gail's husband cheating on her. So like any good friend would do, she walks right up to the table, says, hey, how are you? Hey, how are you? Who's, who's this right here? You know, things along those lines. Who's this right here? This is not your wife? No? Yeah. You know, he's married. Yeah, okay. Well, what is it, 12.30, 1 o'clock around lunch, late lunch? Um, you have until 5 p.m. to call your wife and tell her. Or I will call, because I'm, I'm going to call her at 5 p.m. And if you haven't told her, I'm going to tell her. So you got about four hours, bro. Because I'm not going to let you do this to my friend. She goes back to work. <clears throat> Guy's, you know, falling all over himself, trying to make excuses. Oh, no, bro. I saw you. I saw you. I saw you. So she goes back to work, and she waits till 5 o'clock. And then 4.59, she picks up the phone, dials it up, rings her at 5. Gail answers the phone. Hey, how are you? Doing good. Have you talked to your husband today? I saw him this morning before I left work. You haven't talked to him this afternoon? No, why? What's going on? And she begins the painful process of telling her best friend that she caught her husband cheating on her with another woman. Gail said, oh, there must be some type of mistake, right? I mean, we had coffee this morning like we normally do before we went to work. And I just, I'm just, you know, I, I just had work all day. There's got to be some explanation. I'm going to go home. He's always home before I get there. I'll go home and talk to him, and I'll figure this whole thing out. This can't be what it's like. This can't be what's going on. And so Gail goes home and opens the door, and it's eerily quiet. She calls out for her husband, and nothing. He's not there. She steps into the room and she's like, wait, there's something really, really off right now. Something really off. <clears throat> and as she steps into her house, she goes through and sees that every single picture of their son and their family that had a, the picture of their son in it was gone. See, instead of calling his wife and then owning up to what he did and apologizing and trying to make it right in some way, shape, or form, he used that four-hour span to go home and take every picture, every memento, every sentimental piece of, of trophy or whatever it is they had of their son. He took it all out of their home and with it, leaving not one thing, not one memory for her. As she was going into these rooms and looking in their closets and their photo albums and things, she's like, this can't be, this can't be, this can't be. And then she thought, oh my God, the truck. And she ran outside to the garage only to find that her husband had taken all of the sentimental items that was about, that was connected to their son, put them in the truck and left. He took it all. She thought, 
son's dead. My husband just cheated on me with another woman. I had to find out from my best friend. Every picture I have of my son is gone. Every memento is gone. Every sentimental thing that I have is gone. The truck is gone. My life is gone. And so in that moment, she decided, I'm tired of this life. She went to her bathroom, pulled out the, a large jar of medicine, pills that she had, and took all of them at once, blood pressure pills. She couldn't choke them all down, so she went to her liquor cabinet and got the largest bottle of vodka she could find and used that to wash it all down. She called her friend and said, you were right. Told him, told her what had happened. And she said, and I just wanted to call and tell you goodbye. Hung up the phone, laid down to die. Her friend called the paramedics and they rushed there and found her, pumped her stomach and saved her life and put her into this facility. And that's when I got the call to go see this woman. 18. I had no, not one iota, not one shred, not one ounce of understanding about anything in life, much less a perspective of a, of a woman who had been married 20 years and had her son who was basically a year younger than me when he died, and they want me to go talk to him? So I walked in there, sat down, and waited for them to bring Gail around, and how they delineated the visitors from the people who were in the institution is they had them wear these white robes over their clothes so they could see who the patient was. And she was escorted in in this white robe, and she goes, are you Matt? I said, yeah, are you Gail? Yeah. So she sat down, and she just sat there, probably about this far from me from that chair, and she just looked at me. And it was awkward. And I, being the man of profound intelligence, <laughs> had no clue what to say. I opened my mouth, and these are the words that fell out. So how you doing? She looked at me like confused. Like I was a stand-up comedian and she just didn't get the joke for a second. And then she goes, well, I mean, and then she started laughing uncontrollably. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. You know what I mean? Like, like how you doing? I know it's not good, right? right? And so I said, I'm so sorry. Just tell me a little bit about yourself. I don't know, you know? And so she begins to tell me everything I just told you about the details of her story that I had no clue when I walked in. I tried to encourage her, tell her, God loves you, he made you, you know, don't try to kill yourself again. You know, like, I don't, I don't know what to say. And she, you know, we, I, I ask her if I can pray for her, I pray for her real quick, and then I go home and, you know, and I'm embarrassed. They let her out a few days later, and, and her family that called me to come visit her said, hey, um, why don't you go with us to church? That guy, Matt, who was there, who came and saw you, he'll be there. And if that was me, I'd have been like, no, I'm not going to that church. Like, just leave me out of that one. But somehow, by the grace of God, she goes with her family, and she comes, and she waves at me. I'm like, oh, hey, good to see you. So glad to see you. 
not in the place you were at. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just tripping all over myself, right? And she comes to church and hears the gospel, and after several weeks, she stands up and responds to an invitation to give her life to Christ. And she becomes a believer. We had Sunday night services. Well, we had Sunday morning and Sunday night, because I know it's a Sunday night service here, but we had both of them back in the day. And at the church I was working at, and at night they would give an opportunity to spend a little bit more time at the altar praying for things or praying for each other. And so they'd have the church staff, and that was me. I'd go up there, and they'd have people come and ask for prayer and stuff. And every single time, Gail would come and get in my arm. And so she would, sometimes she'd come to the altar and just cry. And she'd stand up and be like, can you pray with me? I'm like, sure. And I said, what do you want to pray for? And she goes, you know what? I'm really praying and believing that my husband is going to get saved. And when he does, he's going to see how crazy this is against God's plan. And God, I'm going to ask God to restore my marriage. I was like. Swinging for the fences on this one. Okay, that's what I'm here to do, right? Of course I'll pray with you. So we prayed and prayed and prayed, and we, we prayed. she prayed that every Sunday that she was there for months. Months. One afternoon, in the middle of the week, I was uh, sitting eating lunch, and some of you guys will understand what year this was because my pager went off, <clears throat> and I asked my friend for a quarter to put in the phone that was mounted to the wall with a big wire cable that you could talk into. So I put my quarter in, I put the pay phone, and I, and I made the call to this number, and it was a number that said 911. I'm like, oh, it must be an emergency. I don't know who this is. So I called them, and it was my friends again who had invited me to go and meet with uh, Gail at the institution, and they said, hey, where are you at? And I told them, and, and they said, oh, you're, uh, you're not too far from where Gail lives. Oh, can you hurry right now and come to her house? And I said, yeah, why? What's going on? And they're like, oh, her husband died last night, and we want you to be here when we tell her. Uh, why, are you, why do you keep calling me for? <laughs> like, I, I, there's other people that do this far better than me, I'm sure. I'm, like, I'm failing miserably here on this one, right? So we pay for the meal, hop in the van. Some, a friend of mine was driving, and I was in the, in, in, the, in the passenger seat, and my thought was, I don't know why you did this this way to God. When I get there and tell her that her husband's dead after I've been the one that has been literally praying with her for months, for months, that her husband will get saved and their marriage will be restored, and now this guy dies in the middle of the night while he's moved in with the other woman, laying next to the other woman in that bed, and that's how this man dies? So I'm thinking, oh, geez, there's no way in the world she's going she's gonna to endure this. Absolutely zero opportunity. No way in the world she's not going to look at me and be like, uh, where's your God, bro? Telling me to believe and pray and pray with faith and you've been praying with me. Where is all that going at? Where's, where's all that going? How in the world is that going to 
translate out at this moment. I just knew that she was going to unload on me and she was going to unload with both barrels. I remember pulling up to her house and opening the door of the van to get out just in time to hear her scream, oh God, no. She made it to the house about a minute and a half before I did. Saw everyone there and said, why are you all here? Like, oh, we're just going to wait for Matt to come. Matt, from the church? Why are you waiting on him to get here? Just, what's going on? Oh, no, um, we just want him to be here before we, you know, before we talk to you real quick. Something's off. Tell me what's going on. And so they told her, her husband had passed. I ran down that dirt driveway and stood there at the back door of her kitchen. Bag of groceries on the ground. Cans of soup or whatever rolling all over the place. Her collapsed in the corner of the cabinets just broken and weeping and I sat there and was like God I got nothing all I can do is take whatever she's about to say because I don't know what to say after about 10 minutes we helped her up off the floor and put her in a chair at her at her dining table and Everyone was kind of staying around her, and I was like, I need to get as far away from her as I can because she's going to throw something or swing or something. And so I stood back from her, and she just put her hands in her head and wept, and I just was blank. Then it happened. wiped the tears off her face and said, Matt? And I went, oh, God. Here it comes. I was waiting for that zap, you know, the God's going to give me something to say real quick. Nothing. And she looked at me, and I will never, ever in my life forget this moment, because she said, Matt, thank God I have Jesus. Where would I be right now without him? I sat there waiting to get destroyed. And this lady who just lost her husband knew more about leaning on Christ than I did. You want to talk about a renewed way of thinking? A renewed way of acting, a renewed way of living, a renewed way of dealing with problems, a renewed way of forgiving, a new way of finding joy, a renewed way of loving other people, a renewed way of finding fulfillment, a renewed way of a prioritized life. That lady in that instance exampled every one of those things. She had been renewed and she had only walked with the Lord for a few moments. Because she chased after him. 
She was moved from death to life. She read that Bible like it was something that she had to have or it wasn't or she wasn't going to make it. And she went so close to him so often that she just began to renew her mind because she became more like him. And she realized something that Paul says in the last part. It's the last line of your notes here. It's number three in your notes. And that's this. Christ is all that matters. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. And who is that, at, that, who is that us, the last line of your notes? Believers in Jesus. If you're a believer in this room, I want to remind you, not of some novel idea I had, but what Paul says in verse 12, Christ is all that matters and he lives in you. He lives in you. How do I keep my mind focused on the things of heaven? He lives in you. How do I renew my mind, renew my heart? How do I kill these things that I don't want to struggle with anymore. He lives in you. His spirit lives in you. The Holy Spirit of God resides in every single one of us. He has given you the power through that spirit to overcome these things and to get close enough to him to become renewed. doesn't matter if you're the preacher, the teacher, the theologian, the singer, the worship leader, the staff member the, at a church, the richest man in the world, or the poorest. doesn't matter if you're in the top 1% and live way out in the mountains on North Scottsdale, or you're in the bottom 1% and you go to sleep on 15th Avenue and Bell at the bus stop on the bench. If you're a believer in Christ, the playing field is level because he lives in He lives in all of us. If you're a believer in Christ, he lives in us. So the question for us today, what is the Holy Spirit saying to us through this message? Is he identifying something, shining a light on something that says, hey, we need to put this to death because it's harming you in some kind of way. We need to renew your mind about something in your life is there something that he's shining the light on that he says hey you've been thinking so much about this temporal earthly wicked flesh fleshly stuff let's set your mind on the things above the things of heaven the reality of heaven and let's stop dealing with all this don't be consumed by this anymore be consumed with me what is it that he's drawing your attention to or shining a light on in you today My guess is it's something different for every single person. And when he shines a light on something that needs to change, there can be a moment of embarrassment. But instead of being embarrassed, wait five seconds and remember 
that he's seen the thing that's been hidden the whole time and still loves me. That is what the author of love and grace looked like.